maaie trams en hoge plaats en kederig ze blaad. De trams is kan treden en drinken les en een en daal. Op telt die er over een teel en sukserij zing. Waar op een thee de snoe in oog en zelf bij gret na gring. Af zien na hij beneden ze teuren tegen mun. Af ben bij grief en kaal en daar en drun bij bonnie dun. En bij de nepfies al die tijd en plissen zo veel ken. Waar op een thee de storm in oog lees ook al de spirit wijn. Hello, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll finish up our look at book two of the Baroque cycle, specifically the King of the Vagabonds, the final pages of the King of the Vagabonds. Uh, just the way the pages lined up, this episode is going to be a little bit shorter. It's also a lot of action in in this uh, in this uh, section. Um, but where we left off is we, we saw uh, our two main characters of this section of the book, Jake, Jake, Jack, Jack, uh, Jack Shafto and Eliza separate um, because Eliza is getting more deep into the financial businesses of Amsterdam. She's becoming uh, a little bit more uh, attuned to that. They went to Amsterdam originally to buy Quicksilver, but she ended up getting involved in other kinds of uh interest you know stock interest and stuff and she's just hanging on amsterdam making connections and all that and jack's you know he's uh got a little wanderlust in him he wants to prove himself to eliza so he says he's going to go to paris to uh sell his ostrich plumes so he has a little adventure in paris um where he's kind of getting his feel for that living there he spends a winter in paris um Meet some old friends, make some good new friends with some Armenians. All these kind of characters become important later in the saga uh, in various ways. Eliza, meanwhile, starts getting involved in politics. And I was making the case in the last episode that that Eliza uh, ends up a little bit trapped by this, right? It doesn't look like it. It looks like she can handle it. Uh, when she's There's these wonderful scenes where she's skating around the canals of... You know, or the, or the riverways and things of Amsterdam. She's meeting the Duke of Monmouth, who uh, is plotting his going to plot his rebellion against uh, James II eventually. Because this is all set uh, right when uh, after Charles II dies. So the Duke of Monmouth, the bastard son of Charles II, uh, a Protestant, wants to uh, take the throne. There, this is a real historical event. This uh, the failed Monmouth rebellion. He was eventually executed for this. Uh, that all happens off screen in the book, but we do meet the Duke of Monmouth, which is fun. Uh, she meets uh, uh, Bolstrom. Uh, Bolstrom is a fictional character, but he's uh, in the kind of the anti-slavery, radical Puritan sect um, from that family. They actually showed up in the first part of the book as well. Um, but this is like a younger son of them. Who else does she meet? Oh, she meets DeVoe. DeVoe is this French diplomat in Amsterdam. And she think she can kind of play this uh this political game as well as her financial game because she knows quite wisely that what happens in politics is going to affect the markets and what affects the markets is going to affect the politics that it, that this growing capitalist system is going to interconnect the world and it's connecting different aspects of, of of life so you know if there's going to be a war then the price of lead is going to go up, right? Or the price of saltpeter will go up or the price of wood or, or whatever it might be. It's going to be affected by, by war, right? And this leads to kind of her big scheme in this, in the second, second, the later part of this novel in which she essentially 
organizes the the destruction of a of a lead merchant by short selling uh, his stock and and basically destroys the him. But anyways, we start this section. We actually did that stuff with Eliza at the end of the last episode. So let's let's jump ahead to the next section, which is set in early 1685 in France. So this is this is around the time that Charles the the second dies. He died like in February 1685. So Jack will eventually hear about this stuff through through rumors. Elias will be a little bit more in the know. Um, so basically, Jack's got a bit of a job, which isn't in, in really in his character. Um, we're actually told that it's a little bit too much like a job for him. But his job is basically ferrying news around. So, um, you know, between Paris and Lyon and, and other parts of France, he's basically a courier, which is how he originally got a little bit of money because he was sending messages from Amsterdam to Paris. So he kind of continues doing that sort of stuff. And this gives him a chance to travel around the French countryside, which he loves to do. Um, and he ended up meeting Arlong. Arlong was a Huguenot he met on his way down to to Paris initially, and he sees him in a in basically a press gang of of people being sent down to uh, Marseille to be put on a galley to become galley slaves. This is there's a lot in the background of this of this book and the next book about the the French oppression of the Huguenots, right? Like there's going to be a big theme in the third book of this series about the basically the the Louis the 14th sending the army down to crush the the Huguenots of Savoy and the, the Protestants of Savoy um, but here they're just enslaving these uh, people sending them to the to the coast to be sold to galley slaves and where most won't even make it that far it's implied they're they're stripped naked put in chains and, and hauled down there and Jack witnesses this and Jack, whether because he's he's kind of a good guy, he's he's got his morality with him, but he's also kind of going mad, and you know he's getting a little confused because of the syphilis that's plaguing his body, um, in his mind. Um, but he actually helps Arn Arlong, and and he he actually says, "Guy, maybe I can free you." And he says, "Well, that'll just alert the guards. The other Huguenots will be killed if if I run away or whatever." But uh, Jack just give him like his boots. He gives him a bunch of food, and, and other, other things to to help him help him out. Um, so he's still, however, unable to to sell Turk, and that's uh, and I think Arlong tells him a little bit about this, or someone else tells him a little bit about this that you have to go through the horse merchants to do that. And Jack ended up in kind of in hot water with some of the horse brokers and dealers because he lost a couple horses along the way, and He's not going to be able to sell Turk. So he's still unable to sell Turk. He gave his ostrich plumes to the Armenians to sell. And it's not clear if, if, if they'll get that money. He'll ever get that money. He still got his Damascus steel sword, I guess. But that he'll have other uses for, for that sword. Um, all this means he's kind of failing in his, his effort to, to kind of create a nest egg for his children, which is the reason he's in all this. He's doing all this. So now we get a really wild scene. Um, where Jack basically starts going insane and he starts hearing voices. Listen to this. Uh, cantering. Oh, here. Jack began to hear muffled voices coming from under the ground naturally. The skulls all around him began to jaw themselves loose from the muck and rise up tottering on incomplete skeletons, droning on monkish short of chance. But meanwhile, these gravediggers now pivoting in their shovels have begun to hum a tune of their own, a jaunty Irish-inflected hornpipe. 
Cantering briskly on the road, he found himself at the head of a merry procession. He'd become a point man of a fine wedge of vagabond gravediggers whose random shufflings had resolved into dazzling group choreography and who were performing a sort of close order drill with their shovels. This is all his, his, his madness. If there's any truth to this, I don't know what it is. Maybe there are some gravediggers he ran into, but he starts to basically hallucinate that they're singing songs about Jack Shafto. Um, who is sort of becoming a bit of a folk hero, but they're singing it like as an Irish jig and not as a French song. And it's interconnected with Gregorian chants, very Catholic music, um, just different es- episodes of Shaftel's life, morality tales, uh, as many of these kind of public performances would have been in those days about how you better be good. Um, it's wild. It's a wild scene and very imaginative um, compared to what we've seen before, but we really get in the head of this, of Jack, as he's going, you know, increasingly insane. So he eventually uh, runs into this, uh, this, uh, well, he runs into uh, the Duke Darkerson, who, he has that, this, uh, there's different things he notices about this man, he's, who's like an admiral, he's like a French admiral, he runs like the French Navy, a fictional character, but his his key role in the story is as a villain. Um, well, his son's more complicated, but the certainly his father's more of a villain because he's the person who who kidnapped Eliza, right, as as a young child. And Eliza told him earlier in this book about you know, like he rides his white horse with the, with the pink eyes, that he eats the raw fish, and Jack's gonna see the stuff about this man and he's able to put it together even though he's going mad he's able to put it together that this is the man who he's supposed to get revenge against for Eliza which he vowed to do he vowed to do this earlier in the story as well where he basically said I'll kill him for you and so he's going to do this but he it's it's kind of a con- it's kind of a wild section as well it's it's coming off the edge of this kind of fever dream he he had the syphilitic uh hallucination and he starts trying to sell the horse to these men and eventually he just gets captured and almost killed and you know who's the, who's there but but john churchill his old commander when he was in like working in the army with bob um when he was still a young boy and he gets captured and John Churchill says, like, maybe we can keep you from being executed tonight. Maybe we'll maybe I'll be able to help you a little bit. But he's kind of sarcastic about it. Anyways, that ends the scene. So this is a pretty wild section uh, where we see kind of Jack basically losing his mind, probably of a combination of things, but primarily the syphilis, but also, you know, his frustration over you know, his failures just to sell sell things to prove himself to Elias and all that kind of stuff. Um Anyways, now we jump to Amsterdam, April 1685. Well, we have a wonderful epigraph here from Daniel Defoe, A Plan of the English Commerce, in which Daniel Defoe basically says war and commerce are interconnected. Quote, the art of war is so well studied and so equally known in all places that tis the longest purse any conqueror is now, not the longest sword. If there's any country whose people are less martial, less enterprising, and less able for the field, yet they have more money than their neighbors, they shall soon be superior to them in strength, for money is power. Which, of course, I think is speaking of the Dutch in this case, who, who have this wealth. But even more than the Dutch, it's, it's that, the, 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 as a whole, it's that shareholding class 
of the Dutch. Um, and that's where their economic and military power eventually springs from. And Eliza wants in on that, right? Eliza wants to use political knowledge to shape the market. So the scene wakes up. She's, she's, she's with the Duke of Monmouth in bed. I think they don't have sex. Yeah, she kind of says, we, we didn't have sex. I think she did the chakra thing to him and a lot of other, a lot of other stuff. But she, she's sleeping with the Duke of Monmouth kind of for information, right? Where she, uh, you know, he's reveals to her that he's going to try to make himself king. And if he does, I'll make you a duchess. He says, you know, I'll make you a duchess just like Charles II, my father, did with all of his mistresses, made them various duchesses. And this will be your, your kind of way to move up in society. So next, I have a huge scene of uh, at the opera that Eliza goes to. Um, is this her first opera? It might be. But we also learn a little bit about Eliza's business, what she's been doing. That she hasn't, she's not rich enough to really play around with full shares. So she's been playing with what are called ducat shares, just fractions of shares, right? So again, we see all these modern financial instru instruments being kind of introduced in this period of time. So uh, kind of really the roots of modern capitalism being described here. And, you know, and, and then we kind of think about how, much, how little it changes, right? The games that Eliza plays are still being played today by people. So what happens at this opera? Well, there's a lot of like, of like who you're with and who you're sitting with, those kinds of politics. And everyone's not really watching the opera. They're watching this. Stay, the, 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 the seats, see who's sitting with who. There's this, even this a focus on Eliza because of what she's wearing. I think she's there with Monmouth, but like Eliza shows her navel and her clothes, so it's, she's kind of the focus of attention. So there's a lot about who she's with. But the heart of what's going on here is the rumors that are being established by, by Monmouth, by Monmouth's presence in, in Amsterdam, the death of Charles II, and the, you know, the 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 question of what will, what will the impact of uh, of a fight over the English throne, or another war between, you know, France and the Netherlands, what will that do to the markets? Right. So this is our introduction to Sluice. Sluice, this merchant, uh, actually, he's, he's got all of this. Um, he's got this. Uh, all this lead um, in warehouses that he can't sell since the war ended. The previous one has just been sitting there. And Eliza has kind of a plan to get this lead by selling VOC stock short. And this isn't going to be the first time that she's going to mess around with VOC stock and, and, and kind of fuck it up um, to make profit for herself or her allies. But basically the plan here is to sell VOC short um a stock short but at this point it's just, a, it's just a, the foundation of the plan being being laid out actually i think neil stevens sort of introduces the concept of selling sh uh, stock short here which will be implemented later on we're also introduced in this opera uh to etienne d'arcachon uh he is the son of the the duke d'arcachon uh who's the the guy who sold eliza into slavery originally but she doesn't quite know that um, Jack does though. Jack has kind of figured that out at around the same time, but she's introduced to him and he's called the politest man in France. So he takes everything very seriously in terms of personal relationships and etiquette and things like that. And we, we meet him. He's actually fighting with 
DeVoe, and DeVoe's actually trying to stop him from killing himself. I don't know if he's really trying to kill himself or it's just for face, um, but, you know, DeVoe stops him from doing it, and there's there's something going on with, uh, like, because she's with Seleuse, I think, talking with him, and this offends Etienne Dacashon, so he has to kill himself, and then she's able to... By her saying, like that, basically saying that she wanted him to be with her, this kind of gives him face, so he doesn't have to kill himself or something. Um, it's it's some weird politeness thing, but most of the aristocrats don't seem to follow this rule. But but Etienne Darkoshon uh, does for whatever reason. Um, this is going to cost him an arm in a little bit, as we'll as we'll see. Um, now, the other major thing that happens in this, in addition to kind of the whole theme of of the relationship between money, stability, and war, which I guess we can we can dwell on a little bit. Um, for instance, listen to this. Um, but wit fades and beauty fades, and I don't wish to be a house on piles, sinking in the bog of the lily each day. Somewhere I must stick. I must have a foundation that does not always move. End quote. And here, this is actually a, a metaphor for the House of Sluice, because they went to the House of Sluice after the opera, and... The House of Sluice had to be propped up with extra foundations because of the, how many people would be at the party. And so Elias is creating what Neil Stevenson always says is a similitude, similitude uh, about her situation and that of the House of Sluice, that it needs a strong foundation, right? And of course, the metaphor even goes farther. Like you go to a bank, you go to a bank and it looks like it's solid, right? It's a solid brick building. Um, maybe you got some statues there or something. You got a big vault in the back. It looks solid, right? But you open the vault and there might not be anything in it, like the, what happened to the House of Ham at the end of book one. It's, you know, the banks just look like they're on a strong foundation, but actually it's, they're often quite fragile, right? A run on the bank could ruin them. And that's what Eliza is sort of saying here. And DeVoe responds, where on earth could this, such a miracle be found? And Eliza says, money, here I can make money. And he says, yet this money you speak of is but a chimera, a figment of the collective imagination of a few thousand Jews and a rabble belonging to one another out of the dam. But in the end, I may convert it bit by bit into gold. Is that all you want? DeVoe replies, remember, mademoiselle, that gold only has value because some people say it does. Let me tell you a bit of recent history. My king went to a place called Orange. You've heard of it. And then they get the story of how the French seized the, 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 the estates of, of the Prince of Orange. You know, before he became a leader in in Amsterdam, part of the reason for the conflict between the two, and he's saying it doesn't really matter. You can always be pushed up by political power, like war, violence. The king can always overthrow you, no matter how much wealth you have. So you need to have the connections, and and of course it's kind of true. Both are sort of right to a certain degree, but but Liza saying I want to have something solid, <clears throat> and looking for stability through money. And DeVoe says, no, you need that stability kind of through politics, through political power. And this is where DeVoe essentially recruits Eliza to be her his friend, what he says. But he's she's eventually going to be kind of his eyes in, in Versailles, um, is eventually what is going to be her job and how she's going to get into Versailles. And DeVoe eventually talks her into this. And this is like the first shackle on Eliza's hand where she's not going to totally lose her autonomy. I don't want to give you that idea that she becomes an, a character without that autonomy. She, she still remains a fairly vibrant protagonist in the story, 
but she's less free than she I think she wants to be at any time whether it's through marriage marriage or through her children or through these political connections she's established in her dream to make money right she kind of it does confine her a little bit and maybe that's just inevitable for anyone right mm-hmm. that their their freedoms always contingent on their social relations and in Eliza's case they they do seem to to limit her from being as fully autonomous as as she perhaps would like. All right, so this is a this is another complex section, not as complex as the Jack one because that's all hallucinations, but a lot of like political subtleties going on. We're introduced to a lot of important characters here, like uh, Etienne, Darkashan, Devoe. I guess we already met Devoe, but we get a little bit more of his uh, story, and we're sort of told where Eliza is going to end up. She's going to end up in 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 Versailles, the court of Louis the Fourteenth. That's where she'll spend at least part of Book Three. She travels a lot in Book Three. It's kind of wild. All right, Paris, spring sixteen eighty five. Back to Jack. We got a passage from Paul Bunyan, The Pilgrim's Progress, which is about sorrow, um, and we're in Jack. Poor Jack is in the stables of the Duke d'Arcachon in um, in Paris. Or just trying to sell Turk, and I think Turk's there, so it's it's kind of a an irony that he ends up in the stables, which is where he wanted to sell Turk to. Um, but he's in these stables, chained like by the neck to, you know, so he can't get away. Um, and then John Churchill shows up, and John Churchill, later Duke of Marlborough, can't forget. Uh, Oh no! I think Churchill said he was going to buy he was going to buy Turk, and so he stables Turk, or something. So so Jack has to get another horse or something, at this point. But uh, he ends up. I think Turk ends up like in Dunkirk, waiting for John Churchill to buy him. So he does sort of sell this exotic Eastern horse to to uh, to John Churchill through his private connections, as it turns out. Which is a lesson, of course, that Eliza is learning that you know. If you want to get around the market rules of the market, it's good to have the per- personal connections. Um, anyways, they're at this, the, basically the the city estate of of the Duke d'Arcachon. Um, you know, they in these aristocrats often had their house, uh, townhouses, and their their landed estates, right? So that's where he is, and he's in this specifically in the stables, and. Um, Churchill has a very, I think, direct conversation with Jack because they do know each other, and I think John Churchill has some respect for Jack. Of course, much more for his older brother, his older brother Bob Shafto, but he does feel some, I guess, loyalty to the Shaftos, and they talk about how the rumors are that he's he's half cocked Jack, the murderer. Um, at the same time, John's like. No one would believe that this folk hero would get captured so easily and do such a stupid thing uh, like you did to get captured. So, you know, there's doubt on it. He's like, I can prove it. uh, But it doesn't matter. He's locked up, right? Uh, And he's probably going to be executed or tortured or eventually probably sent to be a galley. That's basically what he says is going to happen to you. You're going to be sent down to to the south, to the Mediterranean Sea to be a galley slave. Which was, of course, foreshadowed by um, Arlon's fate in the in the earlier chap- earlier section, um, and they have a brief. Con- I think this is our first 
direct mention of the imp of the perverse that affects Jack. Why Jack does the things he does. Why Jack does things the way he does. Why he doesn't think things through necessarily is that he has this kind of imp of the perverse in his mind. Right? Even before the syphilis, it's been there. And that's kind of driving him to do these these reckless things. But he says, well, doesn't matter anymore because your life's essentially over. Um, and Jack reveals he knows that this guy... Dokashan is involved with the Barbary Corsairs, right? Quote, I learned of the Duke's Barbary connections to an escaped slave who seems to consider the information part of a closely guarded personal secret, end quote. So that's about Eliza. That's a reference to Eliza and what he's figured out about the Duke. Um, so remember, Jack sworn to, to kill this person. And he misses his chance, unfortunately. At least here. And that, then John Churchill basically speaks to him directly, saying... You are not, I can't have you get, um, go south. Because if you go to a certain principality or a certain, like, district, the leader there is pissed at you. It's probably going to torture you. The pliers are going to come out. It's going to torture you, and you're going to get information. And I'm, I'm going to be involved. You're going to talk about me. And I can't have that because I'm, like, on a secret mission here. And I think it's... It's all evolving this kind of J Charles James transition in some way because you got with the rise of James II, you have a much stronger French-English alliance. You have a Catholic, right? And this is kind of, as we're going to see in the next book, this is actually very interesting for someone like Waterhouse who, he's a dissenter, right? He's for freedom of conscience. And when you have a Church of England that's Anglican, that's, uh, you know, Protestant, and you have a papist on the throne, a Catholic on the throne, the king would then would be the one supporting freedom of conscience, right? So it's actually a good time for the Puritans. And Jack, uh, Daniel Waterhouse is able to kind of move his way up in there. So it's kind of involved with that and the Duke of Monmouth rebellion and all this kind of stuff. But he's just like, I can't have anyone talking about me being here or whatever. So... I'm going to basically have you killed before you get there. <laughs> I, I'll have a man waiting outside the border of this area and he'll just kill you and that'll be the end of you, Jack. So I don't know if he's saying like, get out now while you can until if you want to live, don't get, don't be marched south if you want to survive or he's just telling him what's up. I think it might be the latter. But he does, he, he's not a horrible person. He does say like this money, which, you know, presumably the money to buy Turk or whatever is going to go to your your children. I'm going to make sure your children get it. So that's that's the conversation between Churchill and Jack. And then we get to Jack's escape by fire. It's wonderful. So I, I think the way it worked is John Churchill actually left some like, like he was smoking and he left some ash on the ground of the stable and Jack's able to kind of help push it into a whole fire. This is the Emperor the Perverse, right? It's it's not the best plan to escape, but it's better than any other plan that is that's there. And through the fire he's finally able to to escape. And he steals a horse. And through this he's kind of he actually finds like I think the the, the dead rotting fish. So he's got this other connection that to the the that this is the the rock guy he's looking for. But he kind of dresses up as as Halfcock Jack now, right? And this is really convenient because the party, who the king of Fort, Louis XIV is at this party, 
Duke Darkashan, Etienne Darkashan, other high-ranking people in the in the French court or whatever. It's, a, it's an important party in Paris. It's a costume party, right? And he is essentially dressed as this folk hero, uh, half cock Jack, even though that's who he really is. He's able to kind of get his way into this this ball during his escape. That's a lot of fun. Uh, you can tell that Neil Stevenson had fun writing this section. So this is what happened. I'm going to read this. Um, Turk complained of something, and Jack looked down to discover that the satyr, with a very long barbed and red leather penis, had sidled up and grabbed Turk's bridle. Remember, it's a costume party, so he's dressed as like Pan. That is an incredibly bad idea, Jack said in English. There's no point in even trying his French among this crowd. He said it sotto voce, not wanting to officially break the silence. And indeed, most people could not hear him over the odd squabbling, scrambling, scrabbling uh, noises and the muffled squeaks emanating from above. The squeaks might be the sound of lathe nails being wrenched out of old dry joists by the growing weight of the ceiling. Anyways, it was good that Jack glanced down because he also noticed John Churchill striding around the back of the crowd examining the flintlock mechanism on a pistol, very much in the matter of an experienced slayer of men who had... Who was, uh, who was looking forward to the moment when he'd set fire, fire the weapon. Jack didn't have a firearm, only a sword, uh, faint, frightened uh, with jewelry at the moment. He shoved the tip through the satin lining of the riding cloak, cutting a small gash, and then allowed all of the goods to avalanche into it. The satyr responded in better English than Jack would, have, would ever speak. It is a dreadful thing for me to have, done, to have done. Life is not long enough for me to make sufficient apologies. Please know that I've simply tried to make the best of an awkward... And then Louis XIV comes in. But that's that's Etienne Docachon, his politeness, right? The politest man in Paris. And Jack says, are you going to make me cut that off because he's still holding the bridle? And he says, I preferably confess that I deserve no better. In fact, I'm so humiliated that I must do it myself to restore my and my father's honor. So he's actually cutting off his hand. There's blood. So he's really doing it. And then... Eventually, Jack, to speed up his escape, just cuts cuts it off himself. So, at the end, Dakashan loses a hand uh, through this encounter with Jack. Um, but Jack doesn't get his chance to kill the Duke Dakashan. I don't know what he was dressed by, like by, but later on in the book, he says he, he regrets he didn't kill him at, at this party or whatever. Um, so he eventually is able to escape. Uh, because people think it's a costume party and the people don't grab on that he's really this escaped prisoner, at least not right away. All right. So that's that. Um, that's that chapter. The next chapter we have is, is set in Amsterdam, a Slater in 1685. And it's, it's our reunite, the, the, it's Eliza and Jack being reunited um, after about a year apart. More than a year, I think. <clears throat> they spent about a year together before he left for Amsterdam. They were about a year apart while he was in Paris. A little bit more. And Jack's been going mad. He doesn't even know what's been going on. Um, he doesn't know why he got there. He's with this guy, Yevgeny, a Russian, uh, a Raskolnik. Now, now Raskolniks were like kind of... They're dissenters in, in Russia. They're the equivalent of someone like... A, Bolstrud or a, or Daniel Waterhouse in the Russian context, the kind of dissenters from the Russian, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, um, and they're fleeing Russia um, 
during because they're being repressed at the time, right? But anyways, Jack doesn't know too many other details about how he got there, just that there's lost time. But we, we start to see the formation of the group that's going to dominate the second volume of this. The Bonanza is the name of the book. It's I don't know how you count. It's either the third or fourth book of no, the fourth or the fifth book of the series. Um, but that follows Jack's adventures around the world. And it's got, he's got this gang of like 13 people from all over the world. It's, it's, it's a wonderful posse that he puts together. And some of the characters in that are already here, like Mr. Foot, um, Evgeny, Jack, of course, are going to, are, are, are some of the major characters here. And, He's trying to piece together the story as best he can for Eliza. But Eliza's not fully interested in everything that's going on <clears throat> with him. She's got her own things going on, her own plans. And this is kind of a tragic chapter, actually, because if a, if Jack had made a different decision, it could have perhaps saved Eliza from some of her turmoils that are going to come later in the story as well. So... Basically, Jack says, we're going on, a, on an expedition, a sailing expedition, a commercial voyage. And through this, I'm going to essentially prove myself to you. I'm going to prove that I can be as smart and commercially minded as you. I'm doing what you always wanted me to do, right? She asks about the ostrich plumes, and he says, I left them with these Armenians, and I left Turk in Dunkirk to be picked up by John Churchill. She's kind of disappointed, but at the same time, she's made so much money, it doesn't matter to her, really. It's just she's kind of disappointed in Jack for doing, you know, kind of being stupid. Um, and you know they've they've he explains that this voyage is going to use cowrie shells and she's like that doesn't make any sense because cowrie shells no aren't worth anything anymore except in West Africa West Africa is where they're still valuable and he says yeah that's where we're going we're going to West Africa and we're going to be buying you know pieces of India and Eliza's like no you can't do that because piece of India it's our slaves and Jack's like no no it's cloth it's it's India cloth. And Eliza says, why would India cloth be in Africa? They import Indian cloth. They don't export it. You're going to exchange these cowrie shells for slaves. And you can't do that. I was a slave. We, you know, you promised to kill the, you know, the person who enslaved me. Obviously, you know, but that's maybe, you know, the question is, does Jack have personal, you know, hatred for slavery? You know, or is it just because of Eliza or does he have a true hatred of slavery is it just about Eliza so that's the first way he sort of offends her is like I and this is the same thing that's gonna happen to Bob Shafto too is you know Eliza wants to deal with slavery as a systemic kind of global issue and other people see slavery as a personal offense to them um, so that but also she gives Jack a chance and she gives herself a chance in a way she says Jack just stay here in Amsterdam and we'll we'll do our 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 weird sex games <laughs> whatever we can do you, you know we'll live together i have more money than i know what to do with and i'm going to have more i have schemes she's going to she's going to short out the house of sluice and destroy them i <clears throat> so she says just stay don't go on this voyage you just we can just walk away and Jack's like, no, I really can't, because he still feels his need to prove himself to Eliza, prove that he's valuable. And she just kind of says, OK, I'm done with you, Jack. And he goes away to the ship. She throws a harpoon at him. It misses. But 
she's they're they're kind of broken up at this point uh, their relationship is shattered by the fact that jack can't turn away from this this expedition of course if he doesn't do this we don't get the whole awesome book bonanza uh, which i guess I, i'll count as book four of this text of this series um which we see jack's literally go around the fucking world right to find magic gold and you know hang out with enoch root who's like from the bible it's wild stuff um so it's great that it happens for that reason but for the relationship between eliza and jack it's it's sort of shattered at this point and there, there'll be flashbacks where she actually talks about how much she's still angry at jack even years later so jack goes off half mad turning his back on on his one opportunity maybe to do to have a, a different path in life then we go to Amsterdam, June 1685, um, and this is, sh- what's going on in this chapter? Basically, yeah, uh, DeVoe is talking to Eliza about the details of what their relationship's going to be, that basically he's going to be, she's going to be working for him, she's going to go to Versailles, I don't know if these details are established in this chapter, but this is what happens. She goes to Versailles posing as essentially like the tutor, the governess for, I guess it's the sister-in-law of the king, uh, who is... Uh, Lizoletta. So that's Elizabeth Charlotte. Charlotta. So that's Lizoletta uh, from the Palinate. So she's Madame in the French court, daughter of Charles Louis, Elector Palatinate, niece of Sophie, uh, who's the, the ruler of Hanover and the patron of Leibniz. So there's all these connections here. Um, married to Philippe, Duke d'Orléans, the younger brother of Louis Fourteenth. So it's like the sister-in-law. Of that. So she's kind of there as the, the female companion, I guess, of of Lizoletta. So you got to start to know these characters. Like Lizoletta, Sophie, uh, I guess uh, Sophie Charlotte is the younger one. If I remember, yeah, the, 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 oh, the daughter of Sophie. Um, so you got to know that. These are the Hanoverian Palatinate lines. They're all connected to the Winter Queen uh, and the English line. That's why they become the kings. It's important for like the overall politics of it of this story. Remember it's Sophie that originally wrote the letter to Daniel Waterhouse. Tony needs to come back. So that's going to be like her cover, but she's really going to be a spy for DeVoe. Right. And we're going to talk a whole much, a lot more about this in the coming episodes as we see how this, this sort of works out. Um, now before Eliza leaves um, this, I think we, we, we get a little bit more on the shorting out of the house of sluice. And how she kind of destroys that. That Yeah, here it is. It's just one paragraph, though. Um, the horses faltered as they came to a section of pavement that was broken and blackened and ridged with trails of lead that had been flowed molten from Mr. Sluice's house and spread across the paving stones and glowing rivers that had divided and combined as they crept towards the bank. Finally, the streams of molten lead had plunged gorgeously over the stone cay and dropped into the canal where they had flung up a cloud of steam that dwarfed the, and enveloped the pillar of smoke from Mr. Sluice's burning house. By that time, of course, those who had set fire had long since disappeared. It was up to the dross to interrogate the very few witnesses and able to figure out what had really what really had been done by inferior orangers taking revenge on Sluice for backing the French or by arsonists in the pay of Mr. Sluice. Sluice had lost so much so fast in the recent crash of VOC stock that his only way of getting any liquidity would have been to set fire to everything he owned and then make claims against those who had been rash enough to sell him insurance, 
end quote. So that's the, the plot she was setting up earlier to short VOC stock and therefore ruin Slois. Um, worked out. Worked. So she, she can be brutal uh, in financial matters. She's a... She's not the kind of person you want running a Fortune 500 company or a big major uh, Wall Street figure today. She doesn't have she doesn't have too much of a heart in regards to these financial matters. All right. Um, so the next thing that happens a little bit more on the on the war on the market or another reminder of this because it's a constant reminder in this part of the the book. But uh, actually throughout the whole text. She gets kidnapped by the, the William of Orange. And and it's pretty brutal. Like the people she's with are killed. She's got a bag over her head. She's dragged to somewhere else. And the person she meets when she gets the thing taken off her head is it's the it's it's William of Orange. And William of Orange, it's a pretty long conversation between the two about about Leibniz a little bit, about cryptography, about DeVoe, about her role in Paris, about the overall ge geopolitical situation. And he basically says, you're going to be my spy. So the way this is going to work is you're going to send letters to DeVoe in Amsterdam, right? And they're going to be encrypted with DeVoe's technique, but we can read it. And so my, before it gets to DeVoe, my spy masters will read it, right? And they'll decrypt it. And so anything you say in there is for my eyes. It's not necessarily for DeVoe's eyes, right? So when you read that later, like a lot of book three, there's going to be letters from like Eliza to DeVoe or Eliza to Leibniz. Now the letters to DeVoe are really for like William of Orange, right? And so you just got to keep that in mind. Um, but basically he says, you're going to be my... My spy. I think this is after the failed Monmouth Rebellion. It all happens off screen, the Monmouth Rebellion. And he says, if you do this for me, I'm going to make you, after I become king of England, because he's already married to the heir of the Stuart line, right? So if James II dies without a proper heir, she's going to be the, Mary's going to be queen, he's going to be king. Um, and of course, what this gets accelerated by the fact that the, the English just kick out James II, right? And go to Mary anyways. But he says, I'll make you Duchess of, Duchess of Tagum. I'll make you an aristocrat. And instead of like knighting her with a sword, pulls out his penis and has her, you know, give him a blowjob. Kind of unnecessary, I suppose. I'm not sure William Orange would really have done that kind of thing, but maybe. I mean, I think Neil Stevenson does think these aristocrats, by and large, are kind of creepy sex perverts, which they probably were, and I'm certainly they still were. Uh, I think they still are, right? Okay. So that's the kind of the end of Eliza's story. Then we get Jack's story. Not much to say here. Uh, Jack's, uh, they're on their ship. And their ship gets captured. Um, and they're turned into galley slaves. And meanwhile, Jack's going increasingly insane, but he's working as a galley slave. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty long chapter, but there's not much to say about it. He's just um, been transformed into a, into a slave. And the last line of the book is, 
Mr. Vleet was being pushed overboard by a group of Janissaries. Jack heard the splash just as he was sitting down in the shit-stained bench where he would row until he died. So that's that's apparently the end of Jack's story. And for, as far as Eliza, Bob, John Churchill, and these people are concerned, it is the end of his story. It's also the end of uh, The King of the Vagabonds. So quite a lot going on in this book, I think. A lot about commerce. We got a little bit of our adventures. We got this wonderful character, Jack Shafto, uh, and Eliza. Uh, a li- not so much on the natural science front, but we do realize that Eliza's interested in natural science, although that's developed much more in the next book, as well as her doings, her political doings in, in Versailles. So in the next uh, episode, I'll pick up with the first section of the third book of the series, Odalisk, uh, which refers to Eliza, um, I think. But Eliza only covers about half of this next book. The other half deals with Daniel Waterhouse uh, and some of his later adventures. Um, picking up since we last really talked to him, when we last met him, which was, I think, 73. I think, yeah, the... Book one, Quicksilver ends in like in 73 or 74 maybe. So we're picking up almost a decade later uh, with the life of Daniel Waterhouse, who's since become like president of the Royal Society. Uh, After Charles II dies, he's a close advisor to the king, James II, because as I said before, now when the king's a dissenter, dissenters are elevated a little bit, right? Um, After the failure of the Duke of Monmouth's Rebellion, we, you know, and all that but but daniel makes a major change in his he decides to become more openly political not just kind of the public face of dissent as he was with charles ii but to become actually a, a revolutionary and this is going to lead us all up to the climax of the third book which is the glorious revolution of 1688 and the overthrow of james ii and the you know the beginning of a whole new phase of english history under the reign of william and mary um, it's going to have big consequences for the continent, for Louis XIV, his wars, and all that. So, a lot of politics in the next book, and also a lot on cryptography. So, if you like Cryptonomicon, the next volume is definitely, the next book of this uh, series is definitely for you. So, anyways, uh, thanks for listening. Let me know what you thought of King of the Vagabonds, if you're reading along with me, or if you've already read it. Um, and I'll see you next time with uh, with part one of my review of Odalisk. Als dat die er op een tele sexe reine zien, vaar op een tele snoe in alpen zucht bij gret naar green. Van twee lacht hem tegen zelf een kratje aan de rood, we hebben bijgeblaap aan de pak, maar deze is bruin zijn toot. Willem zo kijk en dat is gaan.